Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. So you have to use the tools that are at your disposal. And this is where calories become useful again. Even if they're not perfect, they're still useful when you start to average your intake over time and average your body weight over time. Fatty acids and amino acids are broken down to produce ATP before their byproducts, water, carbon dioxide, and urea leave the body. So it sounds a lot like in and out. Yes. Yes, Alex. Yes, Alex. (laughs) In and out. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Meredith here. You are listening to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. And today we're going to talk about a really fun topic. If you've ever had anyone say to you, calories are bullshit. Calories in, calories out, don't matter. It's antiquated science. It's been debunked. Maybe you've listened to another podcast that's debunked calories in, calories out. This episode is all about calories and food and what your body does to the macronutrients that you eat and how calories actually work. If you love science, this episode is for you. And even if you don't love science, I think this episode is for you. So we will get right into it. Alex. Good morning. Good afternoon. It's afternoon. Do you know what time of day it is? I do. I just got up from a nap. So yeah, it's it's technically potentially a morning of some kind for me. Don't worry. I'm firing on all cylinders. <laughs> you got stung by a, a wasp. <laughs> yeah. And so I took Benadryl. Oh, good. And then we went on a really hard bike ride and I didn't eat enough. So it was like a f- triple whammy. Yeah, this will be lively. <laughs> no, I'm I'm good. I, I rested up for two hours. Okay. So the topic today is calories. What do you think about calories? General opinion. I like them because, I mean, as a nutrition coach, for a lot of people who want to improve their health, performance, body composition, it's really our only measure of food, I guess. Okay. Yeah. You went really literal with that. What's your favorite calorie source? Carbohydrates. Any particular one? Bagels. Everyone knows this. Yeah. I had like, I was thinking about what's my favorite calorie in French fries just kind of came to mind. You had some good French fries last night. You know that I hate when you ask me questions on the podcast. I know. That's okay. You just, we're going to go with it. There'll probably be some questions today. Okay. So we'll just roll with it. No wrong answers. Right. There are, but I know you won't answer anything wrong because you're smart. Yeah. So there's this whole concept, calories in, calories out. Way to try to climb your way back from doing something that I specifically told you not to do. It was just by calling me smart. Thank you. Yeah. That made everything better. Did it? It did. That wasn't sarcasm. Okay, good. Yeah. But you also have to comment on how pretty I am too. Yeah. You are pretty. Thanks. I mean, even just having woken up from a nap and not having all your hair go one direction and like one eye is a little bit more like swollen and shut than the other. And I'm there's a like gorgeous a beauty. Booger hanging out of your Okay, nose. there's no booger. Yeah. You're beautiful. Okay. Anyways, back to your your calories. If this was a visual podcast, you would be nailing it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. People would be too distracted to listen. That's why we don't do YouTube. I know. People always ask, why don't you YouTube We're too podcast? beautiful. It's not that we rarely have on bras. It's not that our podcast setup 
moves. It's that we're stunning. That's it. Detracts from the message we're sending. It does. Okay. Speaking of the message that we're sending, let's let's rally this and get back on topic. Calories in, calories out. A really simple concept. And yet the source of so much controversy in the nutrition space. So I take it based on your little, what do you think about calories, that you are a proponent of the calories in, calories out model. With just that, yes. But there are a lot of nuance. There is a lot of nuance. We're going to touch on a, a few different things, but the skeptics of the calories in, calories out model for essentially change in body mass. So it's all it is, is correlating energy from food into changes in body mass. The skepticism comes from the nuance, really. And we'll get into that. But why don't we start with some background on what a calorie even is, where it came from, and what it does. So the calorie has been used to describe energy content of food and the energy cost of exercise or movement since around the 1800s. I think there's some debate on who first established it, but been around for a really long time. It's technically a unit of heat, not directly a unit of energy. So this is where some of the confusion comes from. But it's, it's a measure of the heat needed or energy needed to raise the temperature of a known volume of water by one degree Celsius. So heat. Uh, it's measured in food using a device called a bomb calorimeter, which is a really basic cuvette. And you basically, like if you were to say, I want to know how much energy is in a cheeseburger, you take kind of a sample, like all of the components that go into a cheeseburger, you create a little pellet and you put the pellet in this cuvette and you light it on fire and you measure the change in temperature. And that's roughly how you come up with how much energy is in that particular food item. And it's measured in humans by how much heat we expel. We'll talk more about this. Obviously, we're not like when we eat foods, they don't catch on fire in our body and heat us up that way. Like the human body extracts energy a little more elegantly. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. I was a dumb jock in high school, but I wasn't that dumb. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's cer- we're certainly a fancier heater. The skepticism is not w- like totally without merit because you look, okay, here's a bomb calorimeter, but I'm going to eat the food. And obviously that doesn't happen. So what gives? And a really good way to kind of start the conversation on calories and food in the body is to actually ignore the heat and energy that's generated from calories altogether and just talk about mass, like food mass and macronutrients entering and leaving the body. We're going to talk about poop. Spoiler alert. Body weight. So like when you get on a scale includes different tissues. So you have skeletal muscle mass, fat tissue, bones, organs, and then we have a lot of water. I think we're like 50 to 60% water weight. So organs and bones for most people don't tend to change mass very often unless you have some sort of a disease. So you can kind of ignore those. Water and hydration status, that can account for weight swings, but not long-term weight changes. And water is a, a relevant end product to the mass equation, which we'll get to later. So basically what your body does with macronutrients, water is relevant. So we're going to talk about it. 
but it doesn't really affect real weight, real body weight in the long term. Are you following me? Yes. Yeah. So what happens when you eat food, Alex? I don't know. You eat food. It gets processed in many different ways. It's used to create energy. It's used to repair. And then some of it is not used and it's excreted from the body. Excrete is such a good word. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happens. So when you eat food, it's broken down in the digestive system into kind of fundamental like building blocks. So it's protein. basically whatever you learned in bio 12. This is the same. And I just, I'm way too smart for that to dumb it down. Yeah. It's so hard. why don't you go ahead? Okay. I'll do it. Protein's broken down into amino acids. Carbohydrates are broken down into simple sugars. And by the way, that doesn't matter if you eat a complex carbohydrate or a simple carbohydrate. It's all broken down into a simple no sugar. No way. Yeah, way. So you're telling me that fruit isn't that bad for you? Yeah. Or is that a completely different topic? I mean, similar. We can, yeah. The car, the end product of any carbohydrate that you eat is the same. Simple sugars, which is eventually converted to glucose, which is eventually converted to glycogen. So which one of those... Sugars is the poison. Yeah. You know what? Like, I thought that, like, sucralose was the poison. Pretty sure we've... Splenda, I think, yeah, is the one. Yeah, right. That's, but that's the one that's been in the news. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sugars are okay now. Fats, dietary fats converted to free fatty acids. Pretty simple. Those are transported along with vitamins and minerals across the lining of the intestines. And then they head for the liver via the veins or the lymphatic system, depending on what the macronutrient is. Protein and carbs go venous, fats go lymphatic system. And then fiber, so dietary fiber doesn't get absorbed or broken down in the small intestine, but it's later, so in the large intestines, converted to free fatty acids. And then some of it is absorbed there. A small portion of the food components that you eat will not be transported into circulation. They never make it into or through the intestines and they wind up in your poopy. Poopy. They do. And healthy people. <laughs> and that is a scientific term. It is. Yeah. Fecal matter. Cool. Feces. What, feces. Is yeah. that is that the actual scientific term? I look like poopy I'm good with poop. Poopy works. Yeah. Scat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If like in healthy people, it's not a ton with some diseases or in diets that are extremely high with like in fat, ketogenic, the percent that you excrete or you poopy out will be higher. <laughs> That's generally accompanied by diarrhea or there's another one. I can't remember the name of it. We're basically like it's specifically when you're excreting a lot of fat and your poo's like yellow. I have to Google that. It's just it's gross and it floats and it's like greasy. If you have normal poops, you're OK. That's like the thing. That's why poop is so important. If you're pooping and you're like a four to six on the scale and it's all one piece and it's not floating and it's not oily, you're OK. The I better go to the doctor. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> the stuff you poop out doesn't count towards calories in, calories out. I feel like that's intuitive, but we'll say it anyways. You want to know a fun fact? Yeah. Until something crosses the intestine, like the intestinal lining, it's not technically inside your body. It's your GI system from your mouth to your butthole is considered the outside world. You're, it's not in your body until it's you, between your skin and that intestinal barrier that's absorbed. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, think so about it. So we're really inside out. We are. I mean, like, we're outside in. Out. Yeah. It's interesting. And that's like, when you think about it, that's why it's so devastating when, like, your intestines rupture. 
you like sepsis, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not never good. I'm thinking of the human body in a totally different way now. Are you? Yeah. You want to like describe it? No, I mean, it all makes sense. It's just like outside in, outside in. Yeah. Oh, mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, that's how mass gets inside your body from the inside. That's actually the outside. Yeah. There you go. Summed it up. Once food mass is inside your body, remember inside is absorbed, not in your stomach. Yeah. You can do one of three things. You can store it, you can use it, and you can get rid of it. Those are the three options. So we'll start with what happens, how does storage work? So amino acids are primarily used to build or repair muscle tissue. So normally the amount of protein in your body and breaks down is in equilibrium. So there's no mass gain, except when we provide a stimulus to synthesize more protein and therefore more muscle mass. And then what would that stimulus be? Strength training. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we get people, and this is just to add a little bit of like excitement to your science. Sometimes we get people who come in and they're like, I really want to build muscle. Give me a nutrition plan. So you give them a nutrition plan and we ask, what's your exercise routine? And they don't do resistance training. So it's like, I don't care how much protein I give you. It's not going to matter because you're not providing the stimulus to build muscle. To some degree, resistance training can be like incorporated in a small degree in like some cardio movements, but it's. I would it's, say if you're, if you're doing nothing, if you're completely deconditioned, like sitting on the couch, don't move around at all. Any amount of movement will be resistance. Training. Yeah. But the stimulus is small. And if you, and it also depends on like your training age and all that. Yeah. Cause but, you're not going to like, I think people forget that building muscle mass is not something we're really evolved to do. We're not evolved to have excessive amounts of muscle mass. We're evolved to have the minimum for what we need because it's really metabolically costly to maintain. Like you have to eat a lot to do it. You have to provide kind of constant stimulation to keep it. It's not really like beneficial to have a lot of it. So it doesn't just appear when you start eating more protein. It takes a lot of work to get there. It takes a lot of work to maintain. And also like it's an interesting thought. Like there's so much of like our beauty standards and so much is pushed on us from media outlets to have a lot of muscle mass, especially for men. Yeah. Especially for men. We're really like, maybe if we were to really live sort of in, in tune with what's natural, probably a lower level of muscle mass would be more natural. Yeah. But that's probably a topic for another time. Yeah. Yeah. So you strength train, body synthesizes more muscle mass from the protein and amino acids that you eat. Glucose is stored as glycogen. So that's just, glycogen is just a, a form of glucose that can be stored and your body stores it in the liver. So it can store about hundred grams in the liver and then in your muscles between 300 and 600 grams, depending on how jacked you are, basically. That's um, what we talked about in the last episode with yeah. the carb loading. Exactly. Yeah. The more muscle mass you have, the more you can store in your glucose you can store in your body. And then each gram of glycogen will attract three to four grams of water, which makes sense, right? Carbohydrate. Uh, so increasing glycogen stores tends to also increase water weight. So if you have someone who's been on kind of a low carb situation and they start eating carbs, they tend to get a, their muscles will get a little bit more full looking, which is generally like a positive aesthetic attribute, but also you're going to see the scale go up immediately. Not a bad thing. Like in bodybuilding, that's a big part of show prep 
is you go low carb and then you slam a bunch of carbohydrates, you pull all this water in your muscles. And then not only are your muscles really like full, but they're, they're very prone to like pump. So it's part of the aesthetic, I guess. And it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. So free fatty acids. So fats converted to fatty acids are packaged into triglycerides, which are transported into your muscles and your fat cells. A lot of people don't know that your muscle tissue does also store fat as a source of energy. So can store fat intracellularly, so internally or extracellularly, that's outside of your cells. The fat that's in your muscle cells is good. That's what can be used for energy during activity. Fat outside of your muscle cells, extracellular, not so good. That's the fat that correlates with metabolic disease and inflammation. So usually when fats or calories, but most often fat is, is like consumed in excess, that's, you'll see a greater amount of extracellular fat accumulation, which then increases risk of certain problems. So that's kind of how we store stuff, using stuff. So proteins do basically all of the cool shit in your body. <laughs> like that would be a whole, that could be a whole nother episode. But yeah, suffice that, suffice to say very interesting what protein does in the body. We'll focus primarily on glucose and fat because that's generally where energy deficits and surpluses come from. So Glucose and fatty acids are both primarily used to produce adenosine triphosphate, ATP, which is what your body uses for energy for the literal billions of chemical reactions that occur at any moment. Like I bet you have at least like 10,000 or possibly 1 million chemical reactions happening right now. Even to look at me, to look at me across this podcasting loft requires ATP and fuel. So the final products of their breakdown, so glucose and free fatty acids for the production of ATP are carbon dioxide and water. So now water is back. Amino acids can also be used to produce ATP, but they have to be deaminated first to get rid of the nitrogen. So that produces the same end product. So ATP, carbon dioxide, water, and then also ammonia, which we talk about later. Where your body stores amino acids, fatty acids, or glycogen, your body can also synthesize the macronutrient that it lacks from other sources. So we see this really often with people who are really low carbohydrate, really low fat diets, or not sufficient in protein. And we're not about sufficient in protein to like build lean mass. We're talking about like sufficient protein to perform like neural functions and promote nerve health. So all three can be broken down into pyruvate, which is kind of like the Uno wild card of molecules in the body. It like does everything. So it can make glucose via gluconeogenesis. It can make fatty acids by novo lipogenesis, amino acids. And for our keto folks, it's what makes ketones, which can also be used to produce ATP. None of those are particularly ideal situations. Like it's kind of like an emergency. Shoot, we don't have enough carbs. We're going to make carbs from amino acids or from fat, or we're going to make fat from carbs. Like it's kind of an emergency supply to make sure that your body can just like function, not even function optimally, just function. So it'd be like runners who eat keto and need energy and the process is just not as good and slower. Yeah. So one of the the interesting things about converting, so when your body converts 
specifically amino acids into glucose, the byproduct is ammonia. It's got to get rid of the nitrogen in order to do it. And so in diabetics and even in people who don't eat enough and specifically don't eat enough carbs, one of the symptoms of ketoacidosis is like a really like kind of a sweet breath. Like you'll you'll notice kind of a fruitiness or like a a weird odor to your own breath. And that's the ammonia. So yeah, that's that's just like a thing to know. So getting rid of these substrates in the body, a lot of people understand the concept of losing weight as in reducing fat mass, but they don't understand what happens. Where does it go? It doesn't re-enter your intestines for you to poo out. So it has to go somewhere. I, like when I was a young younger, legitimately thought you sweat out fat. I think probably a lot of people think that still. I think a lot of people probably, when they're sweating, they're like, yes, I'm losing fat. <laughs> you wouldn't want fat to be coming through your pores. That would <laughs> no. be disgusting. <laughs> Can you imagine? Your Yucky. body does something weird to turn it into salty water. Yeah. <laughs> it seems very clean. <laughs> the vast majority of the, the weight that you lose leaves the body by exhalation during the respiratory process as carbon dioxide or through the urine, which makes sense when you consider what the byproducts of using those substrates to produce energy. So the CO2 that you make when producing ATP from glucose or from fatty acids or even amino acids is transported to the lungs where you breathe it out. The nitrogen containing bits are transported to the liver, incorporated into urea, and then excreted. I got to use the word again. <laughs> along with peed out. peed <laughs> out along with the water produced during that process. So food goes in, it's converted into usable building blocks, then it's absorbed across the intestines and now it's in the body. Amino acids used to make new proteins, glucose stored as glycogen, fat stored as triglycerides and as adipose tissue. So that's kind of where we're at with things right now. Of those three options, the synthesis and breakdown of protein and the increases and decreases in stored fat can both contribute to long-term changes in body mass. So protein and fat, body mass. Stored glycogen only really contributes to transient fluctuations in mass because of water weight. When those are broken down to ATP, the main byproducts are, again, water, CO2, urea, you remove those, the mass by peeing and breathing. That's it. Easy enough. Yeah. Like what does this have anything at all to do with calories? We're talking about mass. That's how the food that you eat either becomes (laughs) you (laughs) or it's, yeah, where you get rid of it. The key here is ATP. That's the key. So remember glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids are broken down to produce ATP before their byproducts, water, carbon dioxide, and urea, leave the body. So it sounds a lot like in and out. Yes. Yes, Alex. Yes, Alex. <laughs> in and out. <laughs> so ATP, remember, ATP then goes on to supply energy for all of the chemical reactions in the body, including locomotion, movement. However, the production of ATP isn't 100% efficient. In fact, it's actually really inefficient. So about 40% of the energy goes towards accomplishing useful things. And then about 60% of the energy is dissipated as heat. See, now we're back to calories, remember? Mm. Because calories 
are a measure of heat. So crucially, the efficacy of these reactions is 40% regardless of whether the ATP is synthesized from the breakdown of glucose, fatty acids, or amino acids. It doesn't change. So a given mass of any of those things can be used to produce a given amount of ATP, and a portion of that energy that goes into producing and using ATP will be dissipated as heat. So your body can produce the same amount of ATP from one gram of glucose and one gram of protein, which is why they're both labeled as having four calories per gram, and you can produce a little more than twice as much from one gram of fat, which is why fat is labeled as having nine calories per gram. Because the mass of the micronutrients in a food or in your body's tissues where it's stored as body fat, glycogen, or amino acids is coupled with ATP production, and since the use of ATP is coupled with heat production, the difference between energy consumption, calories in, and energy expenditure, calories out, provides an exceptionally good proxy for changes in body mass. So you have done it. I've brought it all back. How do you argue with that? Well, I mean, that's like, there's a big difference between paper exercises and practical use. So this is kind of where... So like what I know, and I I've like heard on podcasts or people talking or talking to clients and it's like, yeah, but what about, let's just say the energy used to break down food? What about that? And it's yeah. like, it still qualifies in, the, it's it's still part of that equation. It's just very hard to measure all of the, like, and the types of food, like the, right. the calories, not a calorie. Like yeah. there's, so, like I said, it's back to the nuance. Well, the thing is like, I mean, the human, the human body is a closed system. Like that's one of the arguments. I I heard someone literally say the human body is an open system one time. And I'm like, that's just factually so inaccurate. It's a closed system, right? Everything can be measured. Remember the, the energy to digest food that requires ATP. And what are, what are we producing during that time? Heat, a measurable thing. It just, it gets complicated when you start to apply these principles to humans that have a, a high expectation that the on paper math matches up with what they're going to experience. So that's where like we start to create these discrepancies, like despite the, the mass balance working out on paper, people still report and observe like sizable fluctuations in weight despite consistent calorie intake and a lack of, I guess, predictability in the weight change process, despite changes and I'll say, quote unquote, consistency in calorie intake over time. To get it out of the way, like the like weight swings, so short-term weight fluctuations that you see, and these are, these are weight changes that you see day to day. So you weigh yourself on Monday, you weigh yourself again on Wednesday, you weigh yourself again on Friday, and you're seeing like you know, even across the week, your weight might be up or it's up and then it's down and then it's up and then it's down. Short-term weight fluctuations are almost always attributable to changes in body water and to some extent, the food that resides in your intestines. So people, I hear this all the time. When you say, or a person says to me, as an example, I weighed myself on Friday. I went crazy this weekend or I was on vacation this past four days, but don't worry. I weighed myself yesterday and there was no change in body weight. So I didn't do any damage that those two data points measure nothing except for the fact that maybe you peed a lot more yesterday. There's so many factors that go into those like acute data points yep. at short period data points. Yeah. I mean, and and this is another opportunity where the the math just doesn't add out. So if, if you were to like just gorge yourself and have 10,000 calories in a day, for example, 
there was like a 10,000 calorie challenge going around at one point. I don't know if people are still doing that. On paper, you would expect to gain three pounds. That's the calorie excess. That's what it should work out to. The next day, you'd, you'd probably weigh yourself and in actuality be about 10 pounds heavier. Yeah, that's more of, likely. You come back from vacation, you usually weigh a lot more. Yeah, that's due to the water. That's due to a lot of that food just like chilling in your stomach still. It's not due to body fat gain. In fact, like you're probably only going to actually gain a fraction of that as body fat. The rest of it's just going to pass on through. And the same thing, if you were to fast for two days, you would on paper, you'd expect to be down by like two pounds. But in actuality, you might be down by five pounds because you're, you've are you cleared everything out that typically resides in your intestines. Your water retention is going to be down. Your sod intake was down. So all of these things that can contribute to your weight, like your relationship with gravity on a day can change dramatically depending on what you eat. So remember, like for the human body, water accounts for 50%, 50 to 60% of our, our weight. So huge opportunity for fluctuations and variability based on how hydrated you are, how much salt you eat, your carb intake, workouts stress, that you've done. Yeah, workout intensity, hormone fluctuations, just enormous opportunity for your weight to be different than what you would expect. And you see this all the time when someone goes from eating a normal diet, just their, their regular standard Western, and they cut out carbs. And literally like two weeks later, if they go on a low carb diet they'd be down like 12 pounds, like an incomprehensible amount of weight loss for that period of time, unless you're just not eating. And that's I, all that happened to me once I was doing an elimination diet. So you don't eat a lot of like bread and stuff, which was like my primary food source. And I lost 10 pounds in a week. Yeah. 10 pounds of body weight, but a lot of it was water. Well, like have you ever had a stomach virus? Cause it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. You just like rid your body of food and water and I lost like 13 pounds one time Yeah, when I was in a stomach virus. It was insane. The impact of stress and hormonal fluctuations on water storage is very noticeable for many women during the end of their luteal phase. So right before you get your period during your menstrual cycle. I typically notice, I don't weigh myself super often, but I do bloat around that time. So it's like if I did, I would see a predictable an expected increase, probably like three to four pounds right before I get my period. And then, you know, right after I'm typically the lightest that I'll be in the month. So, so leading up to your period, you wear your old sports bras. Oh and my then God. after you can wear your newer ones. But you, that's like <laughs> definitely a thing. Oh, a hundred percent. Sometimes all the, all the women out there are like, yep. <laughs> yeah. Cause you'll like, you'll go to put on a sports bra the week before your period. And you're just like, nope. I'm like, <laughs> Meredith wears one size smaller than me and literally everything that we have. We have a lot of the same things like Reebok bras. So every time I put on a sports bra around my period, I'm like, damn it, I just put on one of Meredith's bras. And then you can imagine my disappointment when I look at the tag and it's one of mine. You're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Imagine how I feel when I actually do put on one of your bras. It's so freeing. <laughs> like we're having a good day. We're having huh? a good titty day. I can breathe. <laughs> Oof. But then like, why not just like Look, size up. Size up. Or keep the old sports bras. Yeah, they stretch out. They might smell a little, but you just wash them in vinegar or whatever and they do fine. Although, like, I've been going braless more often, like, just out and about. 10 out of 10 would recommend that if you're small you have to, Yeah, yeah. Like you have very small titties. <laughs> yeah, but all of that, if you are interested in tracking your weight change over time, it's usually 
better to pay more attention to trends rather than day-to-day fluctuations because you just make yourself crazy. You don't have any idea what's going on. Some people that I work with, they who weigh themselves on a regular basis for da- for data, they don't weigh around their period. And it's like they know the scale is going to be up. They know the impact that that could have on their psyche. And they're like, you know what? I'm going to wait till next week. Yeah. And I'm fine with that because it's like over, we're not looking at week to week. That's not the measure of progress. It's right. over the course of like eight weeks. That's what we're looking at, the general trend, because along there, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. I mean, you should be looking even like monthly, like once a month. That's well, don't weigh yourself once a month, but look at the like, average over the mm-hmm. month. And even like for women to bring it back to menstrual cycle, that's really the only fair way to do it Yeah, is to compare. Like if you know you have a 28 day menstrual cycle, you really should only be comparing day 14 to day 14 month to month. Cause otherwise like, yeah, you could be fluctuating by, by three to eight pounds. And it just, it isn't fair to compare day one to day 24. It'd be totally different. And where's the rush, right? Like, mm-hmm. does it actually matter? Just like slow down, get better data and then use it how you feel like using it. I usually tell people when they start a weight, like they want to lose weight. The ideal progress is sometimes I don't even say weekly. It's like t- look for two to four per month. But let's say they weigh on day one and then they weigh again on day 30. It's possible that they have lost four pounds of body fat, but they're the same weight on that day. That's what we're ta- I'm talking about. That's why it's so difficult for people sometimes to like stick to it. Everyone wants linear progress. Yeah. From this alone, the fact that water is plays such a huge factor in your daily body weight, that's again, it's like, you, that's why you can't really focus on just the scale because, and that's just one data point. And that's why it also needs to be, weight loss needs to be kind of like a, a longer term endeavor. And you need to be taking many data points, whether they're qualitative or quantitative. But that's just like, if someone freaks out and they're like, Alex, I've been at this for a month and I'm not down any weight. I'm like, give it more time. Like Mm -hmm. if you weigh yourself next week, you could be down five pounds. Yeah. Like I'm looking at your log, you ate 7,000 milligrams of sodium yesterday. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a mind, a mind game, but understanding the physiology behind it can be really comforting. Yeah. And the more data points you have, you you can't, do two. You can't. No, 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 no. Because you don't understand. Like, you don't. There's no way to know if there's an outlier. Which yeah. one is it? So you have to have at least three, and then you can understand. Okay, the low one was the outlier, or the high one was the outlier, and move forward accordingly. Like, just statistics. No statistician would ever accept two data points. They no. probably wouldn't accept three, but at least three gets you started. Okay, let's talk about long-term weight changes. So beyond weight fluctuations day to day, long-term weight changes not meeting expectations. So we're going to talk about unpredictable changes in weight or plateaus when taking concerted actions to gain or lose weight. This is where we're getting into the paper exercise, not matching the real world experience. So in theory, weight change is quite simple. You get an estimate of your daily calorie needs. You increase or decrease depending on what the goal is and watch the energy accumulation or loss play out in a simple predictable way on your bathroom scale every single morning, right? It's just this math. Is the, this just, just math. math. And this is that lin- this is where the linear expectation <laughs> yeah. comes in. In practice, it's more complicated and rarely ever plays out that way. Mathematically, it can get way more complicated than that, but we'll skip that part for now. So remember that the change in energy balance equals 
calories in minus calories out. The calories inside of the equation is what gets the most press and it's the easiest to quantify. It takes a bit of conscientiousness with nutrition tracking, but understanding calories in is not rocket science. Unless you're tracking really diligently, it's pretty likely that you're misestimating how much you actually eat. So I guess that's like kind of a, the, a tangent. Yeah, there's uh, like I'll I'll just give a couple examples. Like for example, you know, you might grab a piece of bread from a piece of like a bread loaf and you look on the nutrition facts and it's like 80 calories per piece of bread. One piece of bread is 20 grams in in weight, 4 calories per gram, 80 calories. If you actually measure that piece of bread on a scale, it might say it's 14 grams in weight or it might say it's 28 grams in weight. So even if like you're tracking diligently, you're still there's still like error. Yeah, I don't think you can say you're tracking diligently unless you're weighing. Everything. Okay, but yeah. There's like yeah, I mean, yes. there's just a lot of possibilities for error. Yep. You could enter something into my fitness pal and that might be wrong. Oh yeah. Like if you're relying on a food database to tell you what you're eating, like you're already introducing a ton of error. And then just like day to day, you are food weighing, you're doing it. And this is not to say that everyone needs to be weighing every ounce of food yeah, that goes that, into their mouth. That's not what we're saying. No. We're just talking about how this how error gets introduced into food reporting. The New England Journal of Medicine is the journal that published the study that found that people who report problems with weight loss tend to underestimate their calories by almost 50%, which means that someone reporting a calorie intake of 1,600 calories a day is probably eating closer to 3,200 calories a day, which starts to explain the lack of progress. And those things, again, that can be just mislogging, relying on nutrition labels instead of weight. It can be not logging sauces. It can be not logging bites and snacks liquid calories. There are lots of ways that that happens. Well, it's like I had a client and this is nothing against her. It was all an educational, partially an educational tool, but she would go for for like lunch somewhere and order like a, a hamburger and just log whatever in my fitness pal was hamburger. Right. Which was like 300 grams because you're talking like the meat and the bun. But meanwhile, she's eating like a thousand calories. She's getting like a brisket So there's seven, 700 calories right there yeah. in one meal. Yep. Hard gainers, so people who report having difficulty gaining weight, same thing. They tend to overestimate by like similar amounts. So it goes both ways, the food estimating, intake estimating thing. So the first potential problem with calories in, calories out not working is that you're just not actually eating the amount that you think you are, which is not to place blame. It's just, it just is. I think they polled even like dietitians and people who should have a good idea. And even those people, underestimate by like 23% or something. So it's like definitely a, a thing. The more interesting side of the equation though, so calories in, calories out, the more interesting side of that equation is calories out. It's just as important as calories in, obviously, because it's the balance, but it's much harder to track. So if you increase your intake, your calorie intake, but your energy expenditure also increases, there's not going to be any weight gain. And then same thing if you reduce your calorie intake and reduce your energy expenditure, there's not going to be any weight loss, which is a perfect segment into NEAT, which stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is a really fancy way to say it's the amount of energy you burn each day for any activity that is not purposeful exercise. 
So this can be walking, fidgeting, standing, shopping, cooking dinner, cleaning the house. Petting your dog. Yeah, petting, walking your dog, running away from your cat when she's mad at you and wants to bite your ankles, things like that. When calorie intake increases, NEAT tends to spontaneously also increase. And then when calorie intake decreases, NEAT also tends to spontaneously decrease. This one's a really common one when you're in a when you're dealing with a really large calorie deficit, you you actually might be more inclined to order like skip the dishes simply because you don't want to stand up in your kitchen and cook. But it's some a lot of the time it's unconscious too. Yeah, you don't even realize that that's yeah. a factor in making decisions. Your body's just trying to to move less. Mm-hmm. And it will get you to make decisions that have that effect. It's not like, "Oh, I want to move less, therefore I'll I'll circle the parking lot until I find a close spot." You somehow like all of a sudden become very motivated to park closer to the store. So you're willing to wait on a spot. Whereas if you're eating more, you're like, I'll just park in the back. I'll just walk. Yeah. You don't even realize that these decisions are happening or that you're making them for that reason. It just sort of happens. Or when your your partner's like, hey, can you run downstairs and get that extra roll of tissue paper, toilet paper? And you're like, I'm busy. And you're like, that's when you're on a calorie deficit. When you have enough calories, you're like, sure, be yeah, right back. Exactly. Aside, neat, your neat tends to decrease more with a, with a deficit than it tends to increase with a surplus. So your body preferentially defends a higher body weight more than it will defend a lower body weight. So, so anyways, gaining weight is easier than losing weight for most people. Yeah. And that's biological. Mm-hmm. This offsets a portion of the energy deficit or surplus you thought you were creating and you don't even have that much control over it. Further to that, oh my God, I just said it. I like it. I like it. I hate, we've been You've emailing- been too many lawyers. We've been emailing lawyers <laughs> and they always start emails with stupid phrases like further to my email regarding, and I just said it. It works. I All like right. it. Further to Ooh. the NEAT topic, NEAT seems to contribute to a, a cap on total energy expenditure. And this is kind of newer research that has come out. So Herman Ponser, who we've definitely talked about before- on the podcast and on Instagram, he's done work on on what's called the constrained energy expenditure model. And that shows that physical activity, and in this case, this is we're going to include exercise in this, but physical activity only increases total energy expenditure to a point, after which time total energy expenditure starts to plateau in spite of increased activity. So you're doing more, 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 but you're not really, your, your total daily energy needs are not going up in an additive kind of way, which means like you can't just, you don't want to just throw food. That's not what's going to happen. So this means, and what, what the body is doing in this case, what he's observed is that the body will decrease basal metabolic rate with very high level of activities. So you may have heard, and this is true, that the, the more fit someone becomes athletically strength more so with, with endurance sports, but like, for example, a high level CrossFit athlete would be someone who's very fit the more metabolically efficient they become in outside of the training. So people who are, who do tons and tons of exercise require less energy to do just normal everyday things, literally just run functions in their body. That's what, that's the body kind of regulating. And that's the constrained energy theory at work is that metabolic efficiency elsewhere. I think that's funny because you see so many athletes who are like, I eat 8,000 calories a day. And it's like, well, why? You don't probably need to. don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. I mean, it's personal. It's d- individual as well, but yeah. yeah. But like that's at that point, you're spending so much energy digesting 
And it's so inflammatory that really like might be better off just like finding what do you actually need and then eat that. Mm -hmm. Changes in body mass and food consumption can cut into deficits and surpluses. So when you lose, when you get smaller, this is like a, a thing that feels very intuitive, but I think people don't think about it. When you get smaller, your base metabolic rate decreases. So the amount of energy that you need just to sit there and do nothing goes down. So anything you do inherently requires less energy and then vice versa for if you get larger. So like if you're on a deficit, if you're somebody who wants to lose weight, you're, you slowly lose weight on 1700 calories. Yeah. It starts as a deficit. And as you get smaller and smaller, sometimes when you get to your weight goal or goal weight, that is now your new maintenance yeah. just because your body is smaller. Right. And I find in, in practice what tends to happen is the longer that goes on, weight loss is occurring. And at the same time, compliance is going mm -hmm. down. So people tend to become less compliant with whatever the diet is that they're following. So that's what closes the energy gap. They're coming closer to their maintenance. And also they're probably starting to eat a bit more than they think. And then all of a sudden progress is no longer there, which is fine. It just means that usually you have to readjust both with renewed compliance and a lower calorie target if weight loss is the goal. And then same thing for weight gain. When you eat less, the and this is what you're talking about earlier, the thermic effect of food. So the amount of calories it literally requires to digest food will be smaller. So the less that you eat, or like you get smaller, your needs are less, you eat less, you spend less energy digesting food. Opposite for eating more. If you're gaining weight, you're eating more, a higher ratio of energy will go to digesting that food. So you, you put all of that together and you can see there's not so much a maintenance calorie set point as there is kind of a maintenance range when changing intake. So I guess, and when changing intake, it can create kind of a, like a dead range where you can make adjustments like up or down. And it doesn't actually, it doesn't seem to do anything to your body. And that's probably just, yeah, thermic effect of food changing, neat changing, and just like sort of things happening in the background that you don't realize. And that's just your body trying to be like, no, don't do that. Negate that energy gap because ener energy gaps in you know, evolution is not, that's not a good thing. And your body works really hard to not happen. There's some other things that can affect calorie specifically on like an individual level. So just like height, hair color, other heritable traits, the length of someone's GI system. So literally like your intestines can vary per person. So you can see up to like meters difference in the length of specifically the small intestine which means that your person with longer intestines is going to have more time and absorb food more efficiently than someone with shorter. So it just means the same amount of calories for one person might have a slightly different effect on another. And then food quality also becomes part of the conversation. So I don't like to say that a calorie isn't a calorie, but certainly not all calories are created equally. So a higher processed foods diet will take less energy to digest. Typically, lower in fiber and will be more easily and completely absorbed in the body, into the body, as opposed to a, an unprocessed diet takes loads of time to digest and energy, contributes more fiber, and it's less easily absorbed. So if you were to just give someone three like 3,000 calories of ultra-processed foods and give them 3,000 calories of unprocessed foods, like the net energy change in the body is going to be a little bit different. So you could, in theory, set someone's calories and just change the food quality, which is going to result in a change in energy absorbed. Like, what are the numbers? 
I mean, it would be very hard, I imagine, to determine. But like how much, if you're taking in 3,000 calories of unprocessed foods versus 3,000 calories of very, very processed foods, what percentage of each are you absorbing? Is that have those numbers been run? Oh, I don't think so. I have no idea. I mean, but even if it likes, let's just call it, let's just say your body would be 10% more efficient with an ultra processed foods diet on 3000 calories. That's 300 calories a yeah. day. Which is enough to create a deficit or a surplus. Right. And certainly enough to negate a surplus Yeah, uh, or a, a deficit, I mean. So, and that's typically when you're looking at gaining weight specifically, you almost always have to push people towards a more highly processed diet just to increase what's absorbed in the body. So yeah, I don't think that's been, I'm sure maybe like a small study has done it, but I don't know of it. I'll have to look it up. One final factor that can throw off predicted changes in weight is where the energy is coming from or being stored. So using rough figures, one pound of fat is about 4,000 calories while a pound of lean tissue is around 800 calories. So when lean mass is changing, which can often, especially in beginners, occur somewhat rapidly. Weight change on the scale can become- Beginner weight lift, like Yeah, people who are just getting into an exercise routine or something. Weight change definitely becomes less predictable. And this isn't, isn't even including the inflammation that tends to happen with an exercise routine. So we're literally just talking about body mass, right? We're not talking water retention and, inflama- and, and weight change from inflammation. So an example would be if someone loses one pound of fat while gaining one pound of muscle- which is a totally reasonable and probably happens all the time scenario, the scale is not going to change, but this still represents a net negative 3,200 calorie cumulative energy deficit in the body. So even though the scale is unchanged, we're dealing with an energy deficit. If someone gains three pounds of muscle while losing one pound of fat, which is something that also happens, but probably over a longer period of time, they would still that's still an, a, a negative 1,600 calorie energy deficit, despite being two pounds heavier on the scale, especially when you're combining diet and exercise to change or with the expectation that you're changing your weight. You have to consider the strong possibility that you're changing your energy balance, but not changing mass in the same way that you might expect. So that's like, you're not just going to magically lose like three pounds of fat and like, gain six pounds of muscle and see what you want on the scale and also have, you know, net whatever that would be some massive energy deficit. It's just not how it works typically. But in that case, like when your lean mass is going up, now you're, you're increasing your base metabolic rate in most people, which is going to, so remember muscle is metabolically very demanding. If it is possible to increase your calorie needs while kind of maintaining on the scale, which is then going to further contribute to your ability to create a calorie deficit down the road. Yeah. So that's kind of the body mass thing. So I guess just to, to summarize this concept, like I've had people just as an example who have started a, a, a lifting, like functional training program w- while on a deficit to, to lose fat. Yeah. And after the course of six or seven months, they're down like 20 or 30 pounds and we're increasing their macros from where we started, which was a deficit because they built enough muscle to be more like, cause they're so much, so much more metabolically demanding, like their body composition. Yeah. Cause they've, they've gained so much strength and muscle. Right. Even though they've lost weight and their body 
masses down. Yeah. Generally, when someone says I'm eating more and I'm losing weight, like if they're being truthful and they're actually eating more and losing body fat, this is the scenario yeah. because their lean, ma- their lean masses up. They probably also in- increase their activity during the day. So it's, it's not just like, oh, I'm eating more and I'm, I'm leaning out. Like they're, they're doing something else. As the well. person who's not in that scenario is eating more consistently, which usually means they're eating overall less. Yeah. So eating the same amount Monday through Sunday, rather than eating a lot less Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because you know, you start fresh on Monday and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're like, screw the diet. I'm going to eat whatever I want or go to a party and drink all this alcohol. And then really you're in a calorie surplus. Or they're eating more whole unprocessed foods. Right. They're eating more food volume. Yeah. But again, like the perception is I'm eating more, but the reality is you're eating less fewer calories and your body remember because we just talked about how much your body has to work to break those foods down so you're also increasing the thermic effect of the food that you eat so it's all it's mostly perception except that one scenario which is still like you have to tell the whole story which is you're not just eating more you're also exercising more and you're gaining more lean body mass yeah so you have to tell the whole truth if you're going to tell the truth or nothing but the truth yeah so help me dog (laughs) Yeah. So I guess like sum it up, the the physics, the human body is not immune to physics. Like it still applies. It's not broken. Like calories in, calories out. Just because it doesn't work out on paper all the time, it doesn't mean that it doesn't apply. It just means that one side of the equation, specifically the calories out equation, is a lot more complicated than you think, right? Like you can't just say, well, this didn't work for me, so therefore it isn't applicable. Or I have a bunch of friends who it doesn't work for, therefore, yeah, it's all bogus. Like, no, it isn't. You just, you're not you don't know the whole truth. You don't know everything that's going on. So like all things taken into consideration, if you were to put a human being in a chamber and you were to measure the heat that they dissipate and the carbon dioxide that they exhale over the course of 24 hours while they eat and drink and poop and pee, the math works out. The math works out. And they have these chambers. I don't remember what they're called, but they exist. And the math always works out. When you do doubly labeled water to measure metabolism, it always works out. It's always like within 5% of predicted values. Most people can't put themselves in these chambers and quantify their caloric needs in that way. So you have to use the tools that are at your disposal. And this is where calories become useful again. Even if they're not perfect, they're still useful when you start to average your intake over time and average your body weight over time, if you care to do that. And if you care to figure it out, you can figure out your maintenance calorie intake assuming like diet quality goes unchanged by observing yourself, observing, you don't even have to fix your calories every single day, just eat, but log it and observe yourself over time. Like take the average of what you eat across a few weeks, take the average of your body weight. If it's not going up, average that intake, that's going to be pretty close to your maintenance intake. And then if you care to increase your body mass or decrease your body mass, then you can start manipulating intake up or down understanding that there is that sort of maintenance range or that dead range that you'll probably have to either work outside of. So you either have to create a deficit that's a little bit larger to compensate for that or be very conscientious with your need and your tendency to reduce or increase non-exercise activity in order to to take that dead range and just make it a little bit closer to your maintenance. So you can work with a smaller deficit or surplus and have it work for you. Yeah. I think there are kind of a couple ways of approaching this 
theory, all of this, and the theory is calories in, calories out with all of the nuance and all of the factors that go into this equation and the fact that some of them aren't really measurable in our daily life. You can either look at this and be like, this is the best that we have. I'm going to do the best to control the factors. So like, make sure I'm moving, kind of check in. Am I sitting a lot more? Like, am I feeling really hungry? Am I feeling really tired? Is that leading me to, to exercise with less intensity or not cook dinner? Am I measuring it? Like you kind of do your best to control all of the variables to the degree that you can. And you can still, like, it can still be a useful equation. It's still useful to measure calories in. Weight loss happens all of the time. We have people all the time. I had a client ask me the other day and it made me sad. It was like, does this, do you actually see this work? I was like, of course I do. All of the time, all of the time people lose weight. But there's this, there's this thing now in this, in our, in our sphere where there's a problem with calories and all of these nuances or all of these factors are being used to say calories in calories out is stupid. If you're a trainer and there are people out there, trainers and nutritionists and doctors, oh, it's just calories in calories out. It's just this, it's just that. Well, it's, there's more. And we haven't even discussed like the relationship with food stuff that go like, it's not easy to control calories in for a (laughs) lot of people, but I think speaking in that way can make it almost feel very like defeating yeah. to somebody who wants to change their body weight, to change their health, or for whatever reason. It's possible and it's the best that we have. Yeah. And it's it it does work and it might take a little bit more time to kind of personalize it and test and experiment and and adjust, but we do see calories work as a as a way of measuring. And we're not even using them so meticulously with our clients because that's not sustainable for life. But Using it as a way like, oh, calories in, calories out doesn't work. You shouldn't, you know, tracking calories is stupid. It, it doesn't account for all of this. Like, well, then what? Yeah. Basically, you're saying to someone like, yeah, it's impossible. Well, and like- some people come in and they're, or we hear like, it isn't possible. I've tried this. I've tried that. But again, like, well, what have you tried? Have you tried it for longer than a month? Yeah. Have you done low carb, lost 10 pounds and then tr- like gained it back? Like we talked about why that happens. But it's like it can be useful still. And even if you even if you think it's bullshit, if you want to find a way to reduce or increase intake in order to change body mass, what you're going to do is exactly the same. Like if you want to say calories in, calories out is bullshit. It's all about food quality and you change your food quality. Well, guess what? You've just reduced your calorie intake. You're just not calling it a calorie. Yeah. Like I've heard people like to debunk calories and calories out. Well, now you're talking about, you know, there's the thermal effect of food. So it's like you're, you know, some just digesting burns food. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly that's what calories out. It's still calories it's out. Still the equation. Yeah. It's like arguing basically like, well, I can fit 20 pounds of textbooks in my backpack, but I can't fit 20 pounds of newspaper. So therefore pounds are irrelevant. Well, no, there's just a little more to <laughs> yeah. Yeah, constraining that than you're respecting. So it's, you know, a mile is a mile, whether you bike it or run it, it's just a measure. So it's how you it's how you put that measure into place that that matters if you care. Yeah. And if you don't care, that's also fine. But it would be weird if you didn't care and made it to this part in the podcast because we're about to end it. But yeah, so that's that's kind of our stance. And I would say the scientific stance on calories in calories out. I hope you enjoyed it. I don't know. I enjoyed doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I made notes for this podcast. I almost never make notes for podcasts. It's such a a nuance. It is a nuanced topic to get through in it. You have to kind of like conceptualize it in a way where like, why does the mass of food matter from a calorie standpoint? But here's why. And this is what it means. So if you like that episode, 
You can share it with your friend who has told you calories don't matter. You can share it with your mom. You can share it with someone who really loves science and just wants to hear us talk about this. So remember to like and subscribe the show if you haven't already, and we'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>